everybody welcome to another episode of art and labor i am okay fox um joined as always uh by sarah crow darcy wilder and lucia love and with us today is jenny dobnow and jenny is uh, an, an artist a, a a painter um as as well as part of um artist studio affordability project um which we hope to learn more about their work in the course of this episode and um also part um also just wrote um a really uh important op-ed in hyperallergic and um about a a very <laughs> like you know reality show sounding proposition that is being given to um artists right now um by a scumbag real estate developer um <laughs> uh and the 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 piece is entitled art washing during a pandemic should artists say no to real estate crumbs uh welcome jenny to art and labor <laughs> thanks for having me happy to be here to talk about scumbag real estate developers that's right <laughs> <laughs> um so jenny can you just tell our listeners just a little summary about like what the 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 offer that may or may not be hard to refuse for for artists being given by this uh, developer? Sure. So this developer, um, which owns a tremendous number of buildings, high-end luxury developments throughout the city, wanted to give artists, uh, 20 artists, I believe, a, a year of free apartment rent in one of their luxury developments in exchange for making an undisclosed number of pieces of art and giving them to the developer. It's all quite vague, you know, like, you know, in terms of how many pieces of art, you know, how big the pieces are, how are they transferred to this developer, what happens if you don't make the art. It's pretty vague, but you supposedly get your free apartment for a year. And, you know, they, they marketed it in term in, in a in a way that's very like, we love artists, we want to help you because we know the pandemic is, is so devastating to you. We love the arts, you know, we want to help our New York City artists, etc. Um, and, you know, th it raises lots and lots of questions for artists. Um, when we are offered this kind of quote opportunity, deciding, and you know, it's not a simple question for artists, deciding whether to say yes, and when to say no is, is a really, you know, it's an issue that a lot of us might actually face in real life. So to me, this seemed like a particularly egregious example of what many of us call art washing, which happens a lot, a lot, a lot in real estate in this city where real estate developers kind of leverage the value of art and what I call artiness to increase their property values, to make it cool um, desirable um, for the wealthy people who they really want to either buy their units or rent their units, depending on if it's a rental or a co-op you know, co or condo. Um, and they really use it to sell entire neighborhoods. You know, right. so even though most actual working artists in our city are not rich, and as a matter of fact, we're a lot poorer than you'd even think, um, according to a lot of research that's been done by the group BFA, MFA, PhD, um, people who call themselves working artists are remarkably low income. 
I mean, there are some rich artists out there, but most of us are not. You know, we, we know what we have to do to survive. You know, we, we're waiters, we're adjunct professors getting with no benefits and no job security. I myself am a freelancer. I've always freelanced. I just got laid off, as a matter of fact. Sorry and we are struggling to pay our own apartment rent. And some of us can't afford a studio whatsoever. But for those of us who do have studios, we struggle like hell to, to afford those. And it's a very, very difficult issue because in the city, we have massive gentrification and displacement. And in that, it's in that context that we are faced with decisions about where to rent, um, where to move, where to live, um, what the impact will be on surrounding communities, which we will get to very soon, because that's yeah. a huge part of this. Um, and when given an opportunity like this, um, deciding if it's worth doing, um, what the impact will be. Is it, is it worth it to get one year, for 20 artists to get a year each of free rent, mind you, in exchange for giving our art to them? So it's not a free, it's not really free. Um, but, you know, for one year of free rent, are we doing harm? Are we allowing this real estate developer to boost their property values in a massive way at the expense of art and artists' reputations, really, in communities of color in our city. And I think that's been a really big issue. You know, a yeah. lot of community activists and communities of color that are, who are being just displaced from their homes don't look kindly upon the professional artist class, which even though we are very low income, those of us who consider ourselves professional artists are disproportionately white. So there, there's a race and class issue that comes up here. Yes, exactly. People and people would be surprised, like, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, this is just one project. It's it, it how can it affect the whole neighborhood? But like, you know, you look at, at Ridgewood right now, like there's a big expose about this landlord, Kermit Westgard. And he it's called uh, curating the neighborhood. It was in the, the Brooklyn Rail. And it it's it is um, it, it details um, uh, th this this one developer who has like a series of, of shell companies that has just been buying up you know million dollar properties like here and there throughout the neighborhood to specifically cater to younger more transplant more white um uh people uh, into the community they're, they're trying to give it a more like carol gardens type vibe um rather than a, a Bushwick vibe. Um, but it, of course this like type of, like there's other types of art, art washing that happens in Bushwick all the time. But yeah, um, yeah it's like it, it, these these um, projects add up and, and sometimes if you do a little research, dig a little deeper, you find that it's actually a, a very, very coordinated effort on the part of um, developers. Um, and and yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult for for artists to reconcile their their role with that because like you're saying like we don't make any money really um but at the same time we're rich in something we're rich enough that we went to college or we're you know um rich enough that uh you know we we have access to to certain types of jobs even if they're shitty paid jobs um you know, th these sort of things. Um, yeah, um, I'm just, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious of, about like, yeah, some of, um, 
the yeah the conclusions you're talking about like it, it seems like artists have a really hard time um organizing together um as a block to then do a collective action to refuse um these things and i wonder if, if you have any like stories about like successful artists organizing in this way that like you've encountered through artist studio affordability project oh that's that's actually another big issue i think organizing artists is really really challenging i i will say that and i think others who have tried to organize artists will probably say the same thing i i think the organizing around the people's cultural plan which was another initiative that i and other an amazing collective of artists and activists worked on, um, which was organized to counter the mayor's city cultural plan. Do you want to explain that for our audience a bit? We've talked about it on Art and Labor a little bit in the past, but like, um, I always get the details fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the mayor, um, which is a good thing, um, just announced that he was, that there was going to be a city initiative to create a cultural plan, which the city didn't have. So they had all these listening sessions, which the city is so quote unquote good at, which are always, almost always an exercise in frustration and patronizing fake democracy, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, they had all these listening sessions and a some artists and community activists started attending them and talking about the cultural plan and we got frustrated and we were like, you know, they're not talking about the actual issues. How they're not talking about labor rights for artists. They're not talking about um, equity and the fact that a few cultural institutions like the Met and you know the Museum of Natural History get the lion's share of the funding, um, and these organizations are not that equitable when it comes to hiring people of color. And meanwhile, small grassroots cultural, tiny little cultural groups, which are really crucial, especially in communities of color, have to jump through hoops to get funding. It's really difficult to fill out the paperwork. There's all this bureaucracy and they sometimes they don't even get their fair share. So there was a huge lack of equity, no discussion of labor rights, health care for artists and no discussion whatsoever of gentrification. So we created it was a collective of people that was amazing. And we created a document which you can still look at and download. I mean, we're not that active anymore because our work is well, our work is never done, but we drafted a um, people's cultural plan, and it has three platform planks, one of which is real estate and gentrification, the other is labor rights, and the other is equity. So it's really detailed and really an incredible document, and we did some amazing organizing, and we had a lot of excitement in the artist community, which was really wonderful to see. Um, I think the focus on against gentrification and for equity was a really big one. So I think, you know, it's like our artists know that our situation is bad and a lot of artists know that we have to organize. But the, the problem with keeping artists organized in a long-term sustainable way is there are a couple of problems. And one of which is that we're very atomized. We don't really belong in, we don't work in collective. We're not in, there's no artist union. There's no, um, you know, it's not we're all in one big, huge workplace where we can all talk to each other all day. We're, we're making, we're, we're working 20 gazillion little freelance jobs. We're working till midnight. 
we're trying to make art in our spare time. We might have a family that we have to, <laughs> you know, be with a lover. You know, it's like we have lives and we're juggling too many things. But I think another issue personally is that I think a lot of artists don't identify our, we think we're different from working class people in the city. And in some ways we are. Making art is a very wonky, crazy, specific thing. It is wonderful. It's very special. We're all very creative and special. <laughs> and we are. I'm not saying that really to be facetious. And maybe, yeah. you know, 10% is facetious. But we, you know, there is something amazing about being any kind of creative person. And we are very individualistic and we each have our own passion. On the other hand, economically speaking, more often than not, our interests actually do lie with working class and often um, communities of color in the city, economically speaking, even though a lot of us have white privilege, a lot of us do have education. But, but I think a lot of artists don't see it that way. I think a lot of artists identify, frankly, as petty bourgeois. We think of ourselves as, you know, we're going to make it. We're going to, I want to buy that building. Yeah. We're entrepreneurs. We're ben Davis talks about this as a like aspirational identity. Which I think that's a great sense. term for it. Yeah. And you know, it's like, look, I mean, who you know, I'm not here to puncture anyone's dream, to aspire to anything. But the problem, the contradiction that we're facing here is mm -hmm. as human beings and as citizens, is that our city is in a huge crisis, and it was in a huge crisis before COVID hit. Yeah, a crisis right. of homelessness, a crisis of displacement, a crisis of lack of equity. And we are included in that. We artists are fucked over all the time. Yeah, you mean you mentioned in the article that um, if 30% or more of your income is going to rent, you are rent burdened. And that's like everybody. <laughs> that's right. So but but you know, it's like, we all know a lot of artists who are, they don't think of themselves as rent renters, who should be marching on the streets with a housing justice movement calling for universal rent control. They don't see themselves that way a lot. Not all. You know, I think some artists are like, well, how do I buy that building? I still want to buy that building. And then I'll rent out, you know, two of the floors to other artists and charge the market rent, and then I won't have to work anymore. I'm sorry to say that. Right. But I think that that is a lot of how some artists see their path through the city. And it was, quote, doable if you came from a middle middle or upper middle class family in the 70s and you're, you know, you could get your down payment from the family, maybe. And you were lucky enough to buy a building for cheap, probably in Williamsburg, which was a Puerto Rican neighborhood. And then you could rehab it. And now they're sitting on multi-million dollar buildings. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to sit here and say those artists are villains. I'm not going to say that. All I'm saying is that, you know, we live in a very different city now and we have, it's, we really, I just feel passionately that artists need to question our role in, in the city and how we want to be perceived and how, and actually what's even best for our self-interest, not only how we're perceived by people who are being displaced, many of whom do not like us very much for reasons that you can understand but also what's really best for us in the long run. Are we really going to be able to afford a $10 million building? No, nobody, no, you know, unless you're like, you know, an actual heiress or heir, you can't afford that. We, our interests actually do lie 
with fighting to tax the wealthy in New York State, to um, fund public housing, to pass universal rent control, to pass commercial rent regulation so that we don't, you know, so that our studios, if we're lucky enough to afford them, we, we don't get a rent hike that is like triple the rent, which happens all the time. You know, it's like we really, I, I would love it if artists could reorient their thinking to think more as citizens of a city rather than special flowers. Yeah, it's it's difficult for, for people to root too because of the lack of, the complete lack of rent regulations. Um, so it's like, even if people want to root and feel more part of their neighborhood, we're, we're constantly um, getting pushed out by, you know, really bad leases and, um, you know, a housing court that was originally designed for tenants, but is now highly in favor of landlords um, that nobody wants to deal with. And uh, so, yeah. And, and then also the, the, the artist as like the citizen of the world is like constantly being sold to people. So it's just like, I'll just pick up and move to a cheaper city and then the same cycle happens over and over That's again. A great point. I think it's going to absolutely happen with the Stonehenge development that you're talking about in the article where like that's not going to go to to people who already live in New York because you don't necessarily want to like have to plan around only having a year lease but uh, I think it's like basically a paid for residency for somebody who doesn't live in the city you know so they're they're going to come in and just uh continue the cycle of using new york as this kind of like post college uh like disney world before they like go go back to connecticut and really settle down uh, that is a really interesting point and you really might be right about that i mean it really and you know and that's I mean, that's also a separate podcast, but like how New York City <laughs> turned into this magnet for, I mean, people have always come to big cities who felt different and, and who wanted to be in a more diverse place, who wanted to be accepted. If you're gay, if you're left, if you're just different, if you're creative, you know, and you grow up in a place that felt stultifying, there's always been a natural migration and a lot of the best New Yorkers have come from outside of New York. The most committed, the most fair, the most creative, the most interesting people have come, of all races, have come from outside the city. On the other hand, there's been this like frenzification of the city that's happened over the last, you know, maybe, I don't know, two decades or so, more, where it's become this like white bread, vanilla, like, oh yeah, let's go, let's go, we'll get a great cheap apartment, we'll just have fun all day, we'll brunch like 24-7, and Lifestyle. then when we have kids, we'll move to Connecticut. And it's like, you know, listen, everyone has a right to live wherever they want to live, frankly, but, you know, the Lower East Side is a nightmare right now. It's like, you know, my studio happens to be there at this point, um, and the roar of the brunchers, even during COVID, is just unbelievable. It's, it's, you know, and it's, it's, you know, I think that ties into the whole, what you mentioned, um, okay, about the idea of curating a neighborhood in Ridgewood. It's very insidious. And I think, you know, the Lower East Side has always been a neighborhood of immigrants. Um, it was, 
you know, Ukrainian and Russian immigrants, it's Latino immigrants. Now it's, it's still very heavily Latino because they're the NYCHA project if you go close to the river. But a lot mm. of the tenements are now being taken over slowly and quote curated along with the streetscape by young Yeah, I was actually thinking people, about the, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about the tenements when I was thinking about like instances of, of solidarity between artists and working people. Like the Lower East Side, like, did have that at one point like it, it's uh, it's kind of unique in that way like that um so many artists like were in coalition with um like latino activism and won a lot of like historic rent control like for manhattan um you know back in the 70s uh and um and it's such a far cry from what it once was and i and it and it's an interesting case to me that like you can have you can have that sort of cohesion and com community um like activism like work but it kind of only works temporarily yeah. it's 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 um, hard yeah. you know i think i think now is a really great moment for artists to kind of uh, not just show solidarity with, but to actually organize together with communities of color who are hoping to stay in their homes and who are organizing for housing justice and against gentrification. And for us to fight alongside them and show that we are on their side, but also in all honesty, we're fighting for our own survival too. And that's the way to do it. You know, not, you know, the, the old aspirations don't work anymore in this city where the land values are as unbelievably crazily high as they are. And, you know, every, you know, we're faced with lots of decisions and it becomes very difficult. I mean, I think probably 80% of the artists in the city were on the streets for, with Black Lives Matter. Just, you know, anecdotally speaking, like everyone I know was on the streets. I was too. But when it comes to our own economic decision-making, it's a tougher sell. And that's true for every human being. <laughs> you know, self-interest is a very human trait. We all have it. But as white artists in the city, or even as, you know, middle-class artists of color, you know, we have to look at how we're being used to push out long-term, low-income immigrant communities and black communities in our city. And, you know, that that's where we get to the Stonehenge year-long artist residency, fake artist residency. You know, <laughs> it's it's not always going to be easy for artists to know. Like, some things are so egregious that it's like, okay, no, I'm not doing that. On the other hand, you know, when, you, when someone's dangling something in front of you and you don't have much, it's very difficult to say no. So it's a big ask. It's a big ask to say to someone out of solidarity and out of political, uh, a political choice that you're making, you're going to say no to something that somebody is offering you. It's easy to do that if you're wealthy, but if you're not wealthy, it's not easy to do that. It's not easy. So I really don't want to try to you know, be an asshole to my fellow artists. I mean, like, you know, I got priced out of my studio in Long Island City about two years ago, and I was looking for more space. I found something. I still can't afford it, but um, it's in a weird building on the Lower East Side. But I thought, oh, my God, do I apply for a Marie Walsh Sharp studio space. And you probably, you know, guys probably all know about that. 
And I had one when it was run by a nonprofit by a philanthropy when it was on in Manhattan. It's now in Dumbo, and it's now called the Two Trees Artist Residency. So you get a free studio space, but now Two Trees, which is one of the biggest and most disgusting real estate developers mm. in the city, kind of is funding it. So it's still a great program. You still get a year of free studio space, but you know. Luckily, I found the studio space before it came to being, you know, kicked out of my studio. But I really was thinking, I don't think I can apply for it now because it's two trees, you know. But I was thinking, well, would I blame another artist for taking it because it's two trees? Maybe I wouldn't blame them. I don't know. It's. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's not always going to be a black and white decision, and. To be honest, Dumbo is now one of the richest neighborhoods in the whole city. That happened fast. <laughs> it was not. It used to be, you know, a manufacturing area right next to projects that was not rich at all. You know, so now and now it's multimillionaires with their lofts there. And you know, artists. A lot of artists used to have studios there. Um, some still do, but it's very, very, very expensive and. You know, that's it's just an it's. I don't know what to say. I mean, there are artists who have moved to the, have studios now in the South Bronx. Do you, is that the right thing? I'm, to I'm do? thinking about two. Um, in in 20, 2015, the article um, uh, highlights the you know um, the protest in front of the Brooklyn Museum um, when they were hosting a, a big real estate yeah. summit. They're they're basically hosting like a whole plethora of these scumbag real estate developers to then discuss how they want to divvy up these low-income neighborhoods. And so that became like a clear action point for that, that united artists and community groups. I, when I was there, I was still disappointed at the lack of cohesion between those That was groups. a big issue. Yeah. And it was um, a couple of us went, it ended up where there was in the morning, for those of you who don't know, there was two really good protests. One was in the morning, and that was a lot of mainly black-led community groups who were protesting this real estate summit that was being hosted at the Brooklyn Museum. And then in the afternoon, there was a separate action, a second action, which was kind of, it was, it was a little bit of street theater, and there was, you know, Reverend Billy spoke, and it, they were both wonderful actions. The first action was a press conference in the morning. And... You know, the two actions didn't cohere as much as they should have. And I think that was a learning lesson for a lot of, for a lot of us artist organizers about how to organize. You know, you, you, you know, if it's, if you have a mainly white, splashy artists, you know, event, the press is going to be all over it. They love that. But they didn't, mm -hmm. you know, are they going to cover the black led, um, Press conference in Press the morning as much. Yeah. You know, we, we learned from that, you know, at least a lot of us did, I think. You know, it's sad because both events were really important and wonderful, you know, and I think um, if there was more crisscross between them, that would have been really ideal and more cohesion. And an interesting aspect to that to, for me as well was that some of the like protest pieces were then like literally absorbed by the museum, like they bought. Yeah, they ended up having um, a show. What did they call it? Wasn't it? Agitprop. Uh, Agitprop. Oh, and I think Agitprop was already yeah. planned. 
But what they ended oh, up yeah, doing that was right now. They added it. What they did is they incorporated some of the activists. I actually wasn't involved with that. I I didn't have any interest in it for some reason. Because but uh, other amazing activists did, and you know there were some community activists like Alicia Boyd, you know um, mm-hmm. from Movement to Protect the People who participated in that, and I know Antonio Serna did, and a lot of people did. Um, I, it wasn't my thing, so I just I didn't. But um, that's fine. But um, yeah, and then you know another thing that ASAP did is we we had a really nice the Artist Studio Affordability Project is ASAP. Another thing that we did was we had a really interesting um, kind of it was almost our kickoff public event. We had a really great um, panel discussion on the issue of artist affordability at Cabinet in Gowanus. And that ended up being a pretty, there were some contentious moments there because we had on the panel, um, Diana Reyna, who at the time I think was a deputy borough president of Brooklyn. And she spoke, she went there and she, it was a mainly white crowd of artists. It was packed. And she raised, she raised the issue of how white artists are perceived. She, I think was from Williamsburg and she was like, listen, (laughs) we don't love you people. (laughs) <laughs> and it was very hard for a lot of artists in the audience to hear that. And she also raised the issue of manufacturing zones and the loft law and live work, you know, the way the loft law kind of encroaches residential, which is mainly white artists, into manufacturing zones where a lot of blue collar jobs have historically been for the, at the time, well, even when we had the, well, Williamsburg used to be a very Puerto Rican neighborhood. Even at the time that we had this panel, it was already much whiter. Now it's like so many of you, you're not going to find any Puerto Rican people living around the Bedford Avenue L train stop or Polish people for that matter. It's, it's, it's millionaires yeah, live there people. and the city put up all their luxury buildings on the waterfront, you know, and it's, it's, um, the city, the city allowed developers to do this, but, um, it, it's, Anyway, getting back to that issue of artists being called out, a lot of artists were called out and there were some pretty intense back and forth, but it was a really important conversation to have. And, and you know, I think um, we, we need to have it. And I, I know that in Bushwick, there's a whole issue of, you know, all the murals and the kind of arts events that happen there. And, you know, speaking of curating a neighborhood, you know, not all, I'm not blaming all the artists who make the murals, but looking at how those murals are being used to kind of rebrand a neighborhood for what it already is to people who don't live there yet. No, I was going to say I've lived in, I've, uh, I've been living in Bushwick since like 2009, and I, I very distinctly remember sometime around 2015 when uh, the walking tours of the city started. Um, and, and that was like this. So, yeah, I mean, the thing with the, the murals is that some of them, uh, some of them were done by people who like are from Bushwick. And I do think that's like kind of a different case, but it was all being used for the same thing, which was to create, you know, activities for French tourists. Um, and like, <laughs> uh, uh, I think like we, we kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago with, I don't know if you remember the, during the inauguration, uh, like Kamala Harris's stepdaughter turned out to be just totally one of these like 
Bushwick pipes and, and we were talking about it and, uh, and okay. was like, yeah, but you know, like we, we encouraged that, like it's part of that, this person who like is, is only able to have this very like charmed artsy lifestyle because her, her dad is like some kind of super rich, like political guy. Mm. I didn't know anything about her daughter. Her that. her dad is an entertainment lawyer in oh, Hollywood, God. which yeah, is like the classic combination. Well, well, now he works uh, with his wife Kamala Harris as she hired him. Um, <laughs> so he had a little career change. The second gentleman, <laughs> which exactly. is like yeah. a seems like a oh, she's like seems like a fiber arts crocheted, really into crocheting okay. and yeah, so. I mean, that's so classic for Bushwick. There was like that, that mural, that crochet mural that w that made a huge oh, controversy. Oh, yes. I remember seeing that. <laughs> uh, and it got so gross. Like, yeah. <laughs> and my, my, uh, my family's been in New York for a while. And just when Bushwick started, this is just whatever. But, uh, you know, my uncle was just extremely surprised when people would start saying they were going to Bushwick. And he was like, that's where like the arsons were, you know, a few decades ago. Like what just anyway. But I had a question about going back to the the two trees studio thing and when artists make these decisions, do you have any rule of thumb and things um mm. to like keep in mind or is it just kind of you know, I don't know, vibing out and trying to see what the most ethical solution is? Oh, I wish I had an easy answer for that, but I don't. I mean, I think everyone, I think educating ourselves around what's happening in the city is very important in terms of gentrification and, you know, listening to people who live in communities of color and how they feel about it. And that can help you. The more you know, the more it can guide your decision. Um, you know, um, if there, a community is fighting hard against being displaced, like in the South Bronx, when these developers tried to rebrand this part of the South Bronx as the piano district. Oh and there were all these kind of sponsored, um, um, who were the artists who did it? There were all these, there was a, there was a unbelievably offensive uh, party that happened. Called, I think it was called the Bronx is burning. The Bronx is burning. That? Yeah. And Netflix, Netflix sponsored it. And it was part of their, um, second season of that Boz Lerman show or something. Yeah. I, I repressed that memory. It was horrible. And, and <laughs> Not it was the party, these, but you know, already wealthy people going up there to party and they had these, I think, cars that they set on fire or something. And it's like, you know what? It's not really that funny that that 80% of it, it was even worse than that. Burned in, in they, the, 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 like, the fashion theme of the night was like like some sort of like homeless chic yeah. or some like insane, right. like just so blatant yeah. about it. I mean, it. that's like literally they use that as, as like for parody in Zoolander. And they're out there like, <laughs> yeah. that was it. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is, it is like, it's so egregiously offensive that it does seem like parody. And, you know, given that knowing about that and reading about it as we all should be doing and, and, knowing that there's community fight back against it. You know, like there's there's a group called Take Back the Bronx. There's communities, you know, communities that are led by people of color who live in the community, who are actively, vociferously fighting it. 
Given that, do you take that cheap floor in a warehouse that's being offered to you? And, you know, I'm not here to be, you know, wagging my finger at anyone, but it's just a question. It's at least ask yourself the question. Maybe you try to find somewhere else to go where you can get your studio. And it's, it's very, it's not easy because there aren't that many places to have an affordable studio. But it's, it is, you know, unfortunately, like everyone else in the city, artists are faced with, you know, at least for us, we have a decision to make. For people who are being displaced, it's not a decision. They're being displaced. So it's, it's not a joke and it's, it's a heavy, heavy thing. You know, um, you know, I think there, there's levels of badness. You know, if you're literally allowing yourself to be used, like with the Stonehenge free artist, free apartment for a year, especially because they're taking your art, maybe you just say no to that. Like, why do it? It's only a year anyway. It's really not going to solve your problems. I mean, I know a year of free studio rent, a free apartment rent is a major thing, but, you know, at, at what cost? You know, with, with two trees, you know, or with some of these Chashama spaces, which happen mm. in um, these temporarily vacant, usually ground floor spaces and buildings that are going to be developed, maybe that's, maybe you're like, all right, even though it's run by a developer's daughter, I'm still going to do it, you know, because I'm desperate for a studio space. You know, it, it depends. It depends what neighborhood it's in. You know, it's like... Um, one contentious thing that's being discussed among activists right now is, is it okay to put, to upzone in rich neighborhoods where you have mm -hmm, a small right. amount of quote affordable housing, but you're still building an 80% luxury building in Soho or on the Upper East Side? You know, I think most of us are united in terms of housing that you absolutely should not be doing that in a poor neighborhood of color. But there's a big debate. Is it okay to do it in a rich neighborhood? And it's, there is a debate. But, you know, if they want to put a housing for artists in on the Upper East Side that's subsidized and it's going to be mostly white artists who move in there realistically, that's maybe a little different than if they're going to put a building that's going to end up being mostly white artists in East New York. You know, maybe you say yes to one and no to the other. There isn't an easy answer. And, you know, everyone is also in a different position in terms of their economic precarity. You know, in terms of, do you, maybe you feel you absolutely have no choice but to say yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. You know, but I think the more we know, the more we can make educated, ethical decisions. Yeah, I wanted to circle around to artists organizing because, um, you know, I work in a community of practitioners and I myself am also a studio artist and um, you know it seems like the nature of the work isn't necessarily just this like isolated thing I, and I feel like there's a lot of like common misconception like we're all these sort of atomized like drifters or something when like I just I just see my my community um, as like pretty close knit and there are people that I talk to on a, a very regular basis and it is things you know to the internet and to all the technology we have that are that's connecting all of our studios even though we can't be on a shop floor together um, we still are always t 
talking to each other about people who have um, certain kind of business practices. And I think one of the things that's really um, interesting about being in an artist community of like working professionals um, who are coming from all different backgrounds is that we all have this tendency of like keeping um, black books kind of like so we know who is like gonna um, short you on a sale or you know we know who's going to um, damage your work if you show with them or if you transport with them. We know um, we know also that there are um, these real estate developers who are entering into um, like these uh, residency sort of opportunities um, and, and they do it kind of historically to boost their portfolios. And it's something of a kind of common practice that we're now seeing um, enlarged, you know, like the history of the city. It's like if you're a working artist, um, you know all of these stories about like, you know, in the 70s and 80s, people would trade work for food. Um, today I have friends who are trading work for dentistry, you know, and like it's, and it's always like this sort of thing where your work can make it into these places if you reach a certain level of cachet. So it's not necessarily that the people who are going to get these free apartments are like some people who are struggling the most who just need a place to live it's probably going to be people with like a pretty decent cv it's probably going to be people who are also making really palatable things who can like you know who can show in a in a way like oh it's fine to see this in a lobby it's fine to see this in a hotel room it's fine to see this work like you know wherever so i'm thinking sorry to be so long-winded but is kind of developing as I was listening to everyone talking and I, I'm not sure the answer either, but it's all really fascinating. Um, like, you know, maybe there's a way to look at what art is and what the artistic process is when we're discussing ways to fight against what is going on. Like, for one, if your work can't go in a hotel lobby or whatever, like, that's already a way that you can fight this sort of thing from happening. Like, if you're discussing uh, issues that are more um, true to life and more, like, unpalatable, that's one way to be like, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm not going to do your, like, Warhol daisies or whatever. Like, I'm look, this is real <laughs> life and this is the art that I'm making and, like, it's not going to fit your paradigm um, and I don't know, I'm just thinking of other ways because it's like artists in general, they spend so much time thinking about what they're doing and what they're making that it's hard for them also to switch their brain into another form of work, which is organizing work. And I find that also I feel kind of alienated from organizing a lot of the time. I feel like people don't have a space for me because... I spend a lot of time doing my work. That is my art. Cause I'm learning materials. I'm learning how to get it out there. I'm learning how to like survive because I also have a studio and I also pay my rent. And 
I'm tired and I and I try all the time and and it just makes me feel bad when someone says like you need to get out there better and you need to align yourself the right way with the right people and like think about the working class and I'm like look I never thought of myself as petite bourgeois <laughs> I work hard I work hard all the time and I know a lot of the people in my community do too so I mean I know that was sorry it was really long talking about but Jenny I really liked your work and I like what you say because you don't have that admonishing quality when discussing organizing oh, I hope I and don't. I think maybe I, mean, I, I, I worry that I do um, but but I, I hear you and I, I I mean you can't and shouldn't ever browbeat anyone into becoming an activist it doesn't work anyway like people have to feel within themselves yes I need to do this and to be honest, a lot of it, this goes for everyone. When people really become activists, really, really, sometimes it's like, I'm doing this for others. But usually it's like, I'm fighting for my life. That's what creates mass movements. Like, yeah. it's like, I have to do this. Or you're just so passionate about something that's wrong. Like with the Vietnam War, you know, but I think, mm. you know, but even that people felt, a, you know, by being drafted and their family being drafted, that was a, a, a um, what's it called? Like That's a spark. Right. A spark that, that comes from how it's affecting you. Right. But yeah, I mean, Lucia, the, 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 you raise a really interesting point. I mean, I think that um, one issue is that even if you make work that is left social practice work you can still get co-opted because like the edc the economic development Co um, corporation which is the city's main arm for managing public land and supposedly generating economic opportunity but the edc is actually one of the main engines of gentrification in the whole damn city because what they they are in the pocket of developers and they give away public land willy-nilly and even in publicly owned land that's, that should be affordable like the Brooklyn Navy Yard, that's publicly owned, the EDC manages it, it should be a paradise for manufacturers to create jobs for the surrounding community and for artists of low rent because it's city owned, no one needs to make a profit. It's unaffordable. And the EDC just brings in luxury development and the rents go up. So, you know, the, what I was, anyway, that's a diversion, a little side trip there with the EDC to explain that the Department of Cultural Affairs yeah. is under the aegis of the EDC in our city. So the, yeah. you know, the engine of culture in our city is under the umbrella of the engine of economic and real estate displacement. And what I'm going to say in, after that is that in Queens, and I think this is true of other arts organizations in the city too, we have a group called the Queens, um, why am I blanking on this? So many acronyms. QCA, the Queens Council on the Arts. The Queens Council on the Arts gets a lot of their funding from the EDC. Their board is made up largely of real estate people and bankers. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. have never met a development in Queens that they don't love. They gave one of their annual awards to um, Ebony Young, who works for the developer TF Cornerstone, who's now running for city council in Long Island City. They have, they were for Amazon. They're for 
you know, they have free space given to them by EGC, I'm pretty sure. I'm 99% sure about that. Um, I want to check my facts, but I'm 99% sure that's the case. And they disperse grants to artists. And there's been a lot of community fightback with some Queens artists and groups like the Queen, Queens Neighborhoods United against some of their, mm. the, the Queens Council on the Arts, which is giving public grant money to artists. They have, they associate with bids, the business improvement districts, which try to quote, clean up areas, vibrant areas like Roosevelt Avenue that are filled with uh, street vendors and, you know, full of life. They quote, clean it up to raise property values, yeah. again, with the curating. They, one of their artist residencies was in association with a bid, you know, painting a mural on a wall or something. They had, they partnered up with some hotels in the Long Island City manufacturing area. The hotels are cropping up all over. They do nothing for the community. They raise, they cause manufacturing area rents to go up and they're one of the main engines of gentrification. So some of their, um, they had like lobby, a lobby residency where you're supposed to make work and then people watch you make work. It sounded horrible anyway. But, but what my point here <laughs> is a very long winded point. But sadly, and we saw it with the Brooklyn Museum too, and the Whitney did it too. Any kind of art can be co-opted by these people. They're very smart. Mm-hmm. Like even if. But I don't, I don't necessarily, sorry to yeah. jump in because I, I think it's like, you say that any kind of art could be co-opted, but I'm thinking of the actions that are um, s- some things that we covered early on in the podcast, like um, guerrilla art action mm-hmm. and like, um, you know, like artist coalition, where there are these protests that uh, it's it's like, sure, you could sell the ephemera of um, the the like. Uh, performance where where people go into the Guggenheim and then like beat each other up and like explode all of these blood packets (laughs) and just like make this sort of like gritty intense um spectacle or if people take garbage and they dump all of their garbage that's not being picked up on the Lower East Side like on the steps of the Metropolitan Opera House. Like, (laughs) this is the kind of stuff that people have to deal with. Like, in my neighborhood, I'm in a weird part where it's um, East Williamsburg, quote-unquote, a.k.a. Bushwick, but whitewashed. And in my block, we um, are... It's sort of like time forgot the block that I'm on. And so did the garbage collection. (laughs) So on the other side of the street, there is a luxury development. And I mean, admittedly, people from my block took our garbage and we put it in front of the development, (laughs) you know? And it was like, what are you going to do? (laughs) What are you going to do now? And then they had to come talk to us. I mean, you know, you got to like... Boyle Heights, too. Like, like the um, different, like, collectives in LA doing, like, direct action art, like, art pieces, basically, that have, like, a real, like, it's it's so confrontational that you you can't really buy it. (laughs) Yeah, although, you know, the Queen's Council on the Arts makes it a point to give a lot of their grants to artists of color, and a lot of the art is political. So... Mm. And which is a good thing. 
you know, on the other, I mean, I'm not saying all art has to be political, and I think all artists should get grants. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of art out there, but it's admirable, especially in Queens, which is, you know, a borough of immigrants mainly. Yes, a high, the a, most diverse place on this planet. Yes. And so, absolutely. So that the artists who get grants in Queens should reflect the composition of Queens. Absolutely. But my, I guess my point is, and you're right, of course, like certain art is not going to get a grant. But my point is, the kind of art you make is certainly not a guarantee that you won't be also asked. You won't, that these things won't be dangled in front of you too. So I prefer to not insinuate that any artist has to make any kind of art. Like if you happen to make art, you know, gorgeous, elegant, hard-edged abstractions that are wonderful, and that would actually look fantastic in a lobby. It doesn't mean you shouldn't make that kind of <gasps> art. Just don't take the residency. <laughs> don't take it. Find another way to make your beautiful, no. hard-edged abstractions. Yeah. I think that there's just like, um, there's a, a, a thing about the way that art flows. So it's like, if in your soul, forgive the word, um, if you are like, yes, I want to make beauty, like absolutely consider being a steward of that beauty and think about who will actually take care of you because real estate developers are not necessarily the ones who will place you in an art historical context that you would want to be in to ensure longevity in your career. And sometimes you have to take the hit in the moment so that you can have that that museum show down the road or whatever you want to actually be doing instead of just catering to these developers for the rest of your life. Um, but there's this thing that I think a lot of people do, which is they look at what is in their environment that is getting some play and then they change themselves. And you change yourself, you think like, oh, I can't make the thing that is within me. I can't listen to my soul. I can't do this or that because this residency is only offering spaces to palatable stuff. In that case, like, you know, I just think, don't twist yourself. Yeah, I think that's- I think like yeah. that's such an important point because it's like, these these projects are not in your self-interest as an artist. Mm -hmm. they're, they're masquerading as one, but um, they're, they're only gonna just continue destabilizing your position. Right. Um, and it, I mean, it just the indentured servitude of live here and get in your hole and make art for us <laughs> and then get out. I mean, there's, there's a group, uh, an artist group in Long Island City, um, that is, has been given space by a local, not a global real estate company, interestingly, but a local family called the Plaxalls own a lot of extremely valuable land on the waterfront and kind of within the Amazon, close to the Amazon footprint. And it's within the footprint of a recent mega development post Amazon, which was recently defeated called your LIC. And they formed a consortium with four other real estate companies to do a mega development on the Long Island city waterfront. There is an artist group, a local artist group that was got that, nice free space from Plaxall, which was very nice of Plaxall to give it to them for all those years. But they were all for the big development because they were going to probably get a crumb 
in the new development. And it's like, well, you know, another way to think of it is, well, that's very, that's great for this artist group. But what is the impact not only on people who live in Queensbridge, NYCHA houses five blocks away, but what is the impact on your fellow artists whose rents are going to go up because every mega development causes surrounding rents to go up. So even in terms of having a heart for your fellow artists who are going to get screwed by this, who are already being displaced, you know, it's like a hemorrhage of artists out of Long Island City, which for many years has been a place where you could have pretty affordable studio rent. I mean, I remember, I'm old, <laughs> but I remember in like 1984, um, some of my friends rented studio space in Long Island City. And I remember I never took the F train ever because I lived in upper Manhattan on the west side in Washington Heights. And I was like, F train, weird, Queens. You know, I was like, wow, um, 23rd and Eli, where the fuck am I? And I got out and it was like, <laughs> I loved it. It was all sky. There was the Citibank building wasn't there. It was all manufacturing. And it was like this wonderful, I loved it. I love manufacturing zones, but it was an actual manufacturing zone. And my friends had this giant floor. They, they could like ride bikes around this thing. And it was cheap and it was fine. They weren't displacing anyone. They were just partaking in the cheap rent. And then Bloomberg rezoned Long Island City. And then now we have Long Island City is actually the most rapidly developing area in the entire United States. Oh my gosh. And, you know, and, and now there are no artists there. Not no, but there, there are many fewer artists. And Five Points was demolished, that wonderful artist right. building. And the developer put up, you know, mega building that's luxury. And he has a bronze replica of graffiti saying Five Points in the lobby. It's disgusting. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's like parading a corpse. It's it truly is. disgusting. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to hear Washington Heights, though. I'm from Washington Heights. Who um, said that? Darcy? Oh, oh, Darcy, yeah, yeah I'm from Washington Heights. Heights. Uh, 190 and then uh, Divorced Parents, oh. Inwood. Oh. So like 207, 215. Okay, gotcha. where, where, where were you? I was in Lower Washington Heights, almost on the border of West Harlem, 157. Oh, yeah. nice. My parents yes. still live I know there. That. Yeah. And they're community Hospital. activists too. <laughs> oh. oh, that's yeah. so nice. Oh, uh, but it just reminded me of, um, because I'm reading Gentrification of the Mind, so everything I hear, I'm like, Gent I haven't read Yeah, and so, oh, I recommend it. Um, and okay, knows a lot more about it. But uh, there's a, a the part that really uh, struck me was when she's describing how the artists are often used as an example of the first wave of gentrification, which is like yeah. And then she she goes on to explain the differences of is like yes, we moved to these locations, but we didn't set up shops, we didn't buy land, we didn't up the prices, yeah. which is like yeah. I, I also think that. It, it still is a signifier of um, it's hard to to say that artists are completely innocent of, of that. Um, but that just sprung to mind if I, I didn't know if anyone else was, was thinking of that, um, of, of like how implicated it is, but then also how uh, historically the behavior is different. Like people move to New York for good reasons to escape like, you know. Uh, abusive to, homes and, yeah exactly and and it should be a welcoming thing i mean richard florida talks about get like gay neighborhoods and artist neighborhoods as like signifiers yeah. of value yeah. um mm. like the yeah i wanted to also bring up like too the perhaps we need a 
um, 12 steps to artist studio hell or something like that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, there are some, um, you know, there ha I can look it up, but I think William Powhita sent me something. Maybe he was the one who developed it. I can't remember now. There was something where it was like, listen, if you, the only place you can afford to be as a white artist is in like Crown Heights and you really have to live there, at least do these 10 things. Or at least don't do mm. these five things, you know? And it's like, you know, just being an artist is not, just being a white artist. There's nothing wrong with being a white artist. There's nothing wrong with being gay. But, so it's it's like, that seems obvious. But, you know, where it gets dicey is how do you, like, step away from being used for what you're, for who you are, to displace low-income communities of color, which is what happens over and over and over again. And we're in an, really a, a nightmare catastrophe now in the city, especially mm -hmm. given COVID. And, you know, the homelessness is already out of control and it's going to get so much worse. We're going to have massive evictions unless Cuomo steps up and, or unless the state Senate forces him to step up. And as artists, we have to which what you talk about, we have a super majority. And I'm wondering if you're interested in any legislation coming down the pipe. Yeah, there, there guess, are, you know, there's all these proposals to finally tax the rich, which is exactly what we need to do. Cuomo won't do it. If now let's see these progressives in the super majority. Let's see how progressive they are. Will they override his veto? Will they force him to do it? There are, there are proposals. There, there's um, a proposal to tax the wealthy. In the state, I forget what it's called. It has a very catchy name, and I can't think of what it's called. Um, but I can give you links after, and that's not helpful for people on the podcast. But maybe it could be on the website or something. Oh no, it's all there. Uh, I was reading the pro one. It's called pro or something. Or am I getting confused you know, with a different it's, one? It has. It has. A, <laughs> it's not called tax the the rich, but it's something mm. almost as simple as that, and I can't recall it. There's yeah. another proposal to. Um, Wall Street transactions, which could raise billions right. of, like, not three billion, like 12 billion or something like that per year. And the sick thing about that is that it's a pennies on every Wall Street transaction tax. Pennies. This bill okay. is on the books. The law is on the books. We already have a Wall Street transfer tax. But for many, many years, I believe since the 80s, the state has been rebating it back to Wall Street because they don't Wall Street's their donors that's their friends if we just did that we could fund many many things that are not being funded right now we could you know you know NYCHA's entire deficit in terms of fixing NYCHA is I think I want to say 30 billion I could be wrong I, I mean when it comes to billions my mind just goes for kerfluey it's almost meaningless to me but it's <laughs> you know a couple of years of a Wall Street transfer tax we could entirely rehabilitate NYCHA. And now the city That's and right. state and city are talking about privatizing NYCHA, which is a disaster. They already started. You, you have like a whole city's started. worth of people living in NYCHA. And if that thing gets privatized, historically, you know, when we look at public housing that's privatized, the eviction rates skyrocket. And it's a way for private real estate developers to make money. And, you know, that is something I know we're getting 
it might seem like we're getting far afield from artists in New York City, but it's not far afield because it's an ecosystem. It's all connected. And, you know, it's going to be totally part of Andrew Yang's uh, uh, plan to turn <laughs> NYCHA into hype houses. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, my exactly. God. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we have a to protect, think in terms of the public good. And, you know, there is another way like artists, you know, we're, we just scramble over each other for crumbs because we're desperate. And these crumbs often come from public-private partnerships and often real estate. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, artists, if, if we had affordable rent in this whole city, like every other renter, that would be half the battle right there. You know, I mean, like... Yeah, and I, I want to encourage people to get involved in housing justice for all, like you mentioned in the article, if they really feel up to, because like Lucia is saying, like that, that thing about like getting too involved in activism, the it's harder to to focus on yourself and your career and like your jobs. Like I, I'm in like the opposite where I'm like, I feel like I'm spending a lot of time, like, um, trying to, to like wrap my head around everything going on in my neighborhood that like, it's making it very difficult for me to focus on the same work. So (laughs) it's just like, it's just like, it it sucks too. Like, it's like, it's not great. But the thing is like, you. You can, like, you can be political without, like, having that be, like, the the, um, fulcrum point of your entire life. Um, And I think it's, like, very much worth every artist to try and find that balance. Um, Because, yeah, ultimately, like, I think that most people should try and find that in their lives, whether they're, like, a plumber or an artist or whatever. Yeah. Jane McAlevey, uh, whom I love, uh, you know, writes about that um, in her latest book about unions. Uh, she has a few about the self-selecting organizations, you know, like DSA and stuff like that versus the structural stuff where it's just, uh, you know, you, you're in a workplace and you organize it and you have to learn how to work with people that you don't choose. And her thing is like, you don't choose your comrades, which I found to be very profound. Um because uh, when, yeah, and with self-selecting stuff, it's uh, I have a history of burning out and getting like super into it, and then being like, oh, I have neglected my other obligations. So it's really, really difficult. But I do think Sorry. Sarah, you make a really <laughs> good point that you know, I'm, I some of us get so sucked in that it really takes over and it can become all-consuming. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if you as an artist just learn a a little bit, which isn't hard to do, about the dynamics that are happening in the city, the dynamics of displacement, and just say, you know what, I'm going to occasionally go to a community meeting um, around a development that's happening and show my support as an artist. I'm going to sign some petitions, um, and I am going to now think twice before I take a quote opportunity in a low-income community of color. I'm going to at least consider what the impact could be given my recently acquired knowledge. You know, that's a big thing. It just, that is not too time consuming and just having that consciousness and awareness, self-awareness is a really great first step. And maybe that's enough for many artists to just do that, you know, and think about, you know, we, we do have to at least understand some of the policies that affect us collectively and that also affect communities that are a part of our 
city that we love, you know, and we need the city to thrive and be an equitable place for everybody as well as for us. And I think that's where our long-term survival and also joy and also career uh, goals reside. You know, I mean, to be honest, we're in such a crisis right now that galleries might, you know, galleries, nada is working with a group that I work with to fight for commercial rent regulation. That's where we are. Nada. (laughs) I mean, it's like if gallery, you know, galleries are often seen as gentrifiers and sometimes they are, but you know, when you have a Chelsea gallery, who's like, I can't afford my rent. You know, we're in, we're at that point where for your own darn self-interest, if you want to show at a gallery, we have to start thinking about these policy issues and how it's affecting the entire city from top to bottom. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's a really good note to wrap on, um, unless anyone has um, any more thoughts. I don't want to shut shut any other questions down, but um, really appreciate your time, Jenny. Um, really appreciate your work. Um, definitely, we're going to link to the article. We're going to link to the other articles we mentioned. Um, and um, yeah, thank you so much. For, you know, people, fans of our show can support us on Patreon. Uh, we always appreciate that. Um, it, times are hard right now, so no worries about it. Um, you know, uh, th- thank you so much. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you guys so much. It's been really fun and interesting to talk about this with you. And uh, you're, you're doing great work here. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right, let's, let's have fun. Lots of fun. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. Lots of fun.